Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague. Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change. Hello, good morning, Ruth, and um, welcome. It is wonderful to see you. Um, to people who are joining us, uh, who might, or who might be seeing this later, later on, I'm Nigel Savage. I'm the CEO of Chazan. Chazan is the Jewish lab for sustainability, um, and it, is, it has been our happy task these many years to point the Jewish community outwards to work for a healthier and a more sustainable world for everybody, and to use that process to strengthen Jewish life. In this very strange time in which we now find ourselves, one of the things that we've begun is this series in conversation called After the Plague. And I'm very thrilled this week to welcome Ruth, Man Ruth Messenger, who is a dear friend, who is a, a born and bred New Yorker, grew up at the Jewish Theological Seminary, has been involved in civic politics her entire life, was Manhattan Borough President and a very uh, well-loved one, um, ran for mayor, um, became head of American Jewish World Service when it had a staff of perhaps 10 people and a budget of under $2 million and grew it to the organization. Uh, it is today far and away the largest uh, organization working on international human rights uh, within and beyond the American Jewish community. Um, Ruth, good morning. Where are you and how are you? Um, good morning, Nigel. Um, and I've been a, both a Hazon board member um, and uh, has own bike rider. Um, where I am right now is in my um, quite comfortable New York City apartment with a large number of family and we're all very well. I was going to say you're the definition of the contemporary multi-generational family. Who's actually in your apartment at the moment? Uh, it doesn't happen very often I think in America and it doesn't happen usually in New York. Although let me point out it happens more often in communities in New York that are less well off where many generations end up sharing an apartment. But um, I'm, I'm here with my husband. Um, we have um, our granddaughter Francesca has lived here um, for about eight years living and working out of the apartment. She recently got married. Her husband is a national in another country. So it will take him a while to get here. But meanwhile, they decided to go ahead and have a baby. That was before we all knew about the virus. But we have a 10-week-old great-grandson, uh, Leo, who's living here. Um, and then my daughter-in-law came to be helpful at a point at which she was still going back and forth to Miami. But then the virus happened, so she's moved in. So that's, well, that's four generations. Um, my mother-in-law actually lives three blocks away, Andrew's mom. So we include her in our daily rounds. And my son, Daniel, who is the grandfather of this baby, um, has been in Miami because he went back to Miami when you could still travel because he's a professor, but now all his classes and work is online. So he wants to be with the family and he thought that um, airplanes were not safe. So yesterday and today he's been driving to New York and he should be here in about three hours. 
So first of all, give him my best wishes. I thought you were about to say he's decided to ride his bicycle <laughs> up here on these quiet roads. Maybe he'll ride back. And no, I was thinking- It's a 20 hour drive from Miami to New York, but I think it's been much less long because there's no cars on the road. Yes. I was thinking on the one hand, like looking forwards, Leo, please God, should be alive in 2100, which is itself a remarkable thought. He will essentially be about your age now yep. in 2100. Correct. I'm interested to know, looking backwards the other way back, how far back can you go in your family? Who is the earliest uh, antecedent of, of Leo that you know? Who, who would have been the earliest ancestor? Well, it's really complicated, and because like many families, we have a mixed Brendan, blended whatever family. But just talking for myself, I um, I was actually privileged to grow up with my mother's parents, so my maternal grandparents, who lived until I was a young adult, and in a very odd story, which would literally take ten minutes to tell, so we're not going to go there. But my father's grandfather who um, the briefest version of this is, was a Romanian Orthodox Jew, came to the States, was a business person here, had real complicated stories about wives and, 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 and losing death, the death of wives and children. And anyway, eventually he remarried, this is like encapsulating long history, remarried all before I was born, remarried a Romanian doctor who was in the States and went back to Romania and lived there for many, many years and then petitioned his grandchildren, particularly my father, to come back to the States. So he came to the States probably when I was about 10 and lived probably till I was about 15. So he's my great grandfather Wow. I, know, I know him and I know a whole bunch of cousins. You know, every once in a while, people in the Jewish community, you, might, you and I might have had this discussion, ask me if I happen to know Peter Geffen, who runs Kibunim. Peter Geffen and I are second cousins. We share this great-grandfather. I hadn't realized that, but I did, I think, recall a story about Hannah teaching in, uh, in the last few years and discovering that one of the pupils was a yeah. second cousin first removed and she That's hadn't true. realized that. That's true. That's true. So it's amazing, your family, like essentially all of our families and particularly including periods before we know, lived through all sorts of challenging times, wars, revolutions, pogroms, yep. all kinds of things that we can hardly ima imagine. And, and I remain fundamentally aware of how lucky I am at the moment in all sorts of ways. And at the same time, these are unusual times. Firstly, just as a household. I would, I would just note, just, just let me interrupt for a minute. The yeah. newspapers have been doing, particularly the New York Times, have been doing some nice stuff with things like that. Also the Jewish papers. So there've been a couple of articles about people who last remember, um, you know, being isolated, like, like during the Shoah. There's a woman writing someplace in the Times today who writes about a student of hers or a former student of hers who's living alone someplace in the States, but whose last time living alone was literally living in a, in a coal bin in Budapest. So. Wow. Wow. And it's a reminder of, of what people can survive and truthfully much worse things than this. But so I'm interested to know, first of all, just as a household, like what have you been surprised by? Like, like what is actually very enjoyable? What is stressful? What has been pleasurable? What did you not expect? Um, um, well, I think lots of things. Some are derivative of just the wonderfulness of having a household with a baby, but but some are derivative of having a household 
with many people and a baby in the middle of this virus. So first of all, we're very lucky. We have a lot of people. We have a lot of people who enjoy this baby. Um, being in a situation in which you really have the opportunity to focus in on the baby in a, in a very serious, thoughtful way because you don't have to run off to a meeting is wonderful. So I think um, I'm, I find that I'm working much more than I thought I would be working. Every organization and board that I have something to do with, including Hazon, is having more regular meetings or is suddenly going on Zoom. We're doing a fantastic, if I say so myself, program for the JCC um, called Justice in Action, which is a weekly program talking about the impact of the virus on New York City populations who are less well off than the rest of us. So domestic violence victims, which you mentioned last week, um, people in jail and prison, people who are food insecure. So each week we're, we're focusing in on one of those populations. But all I'm saying is that's a lot of activity. It's a lot of activity on Zoom. I wanna say that it's, Zoom is not nearly as much fun as going to a meeting, seeing people, having a snack. I did a Zoom social justice Seder with 35 people, which everybody thought was quite satisfactory. Um, I loved it, but I missed the cooking and I missed the eating. So it's all, it's all a mixed blessing. Um, I thought that that's all on the personal and delightful level. I mean, one thing you'll be glad to know is that because of the people who are the four generations in this household, first of all, instead of our usual pace of like everybody picks up a meal when they come or go through the kitchen, we're actually eating together at least every night. And because we're eating together every night, you'll be happy to know we're eating many more vegetables. Well, good for you. Um, and I was and I was out yesterday going around the park and and kind of crazily they're growing tomatoes outside the Guggenheim at the moment. There is a, nice. a, a, a there's a, a a huge white thing. It was somehow to do with an exhibit, and of course the Guggenheim itself is closed. But they're growing tomatoes there. You can go past and you see, and they're planning to give them to people in need here. Um, looking now at the at the world, I think first the Jewish community and then really America and the world. As we, as we start to come out of this, um, first of all, how do you think this is gonna play out? Obviously, we none of us know. And secondly, what do you think the, A, what do you think the changes are gonna be in the Jewish community, and what changes do you think there should be? Okay, well, actually, I wanna, I wanna flip it around, Nigel. And before we get to the Jewish community, which always, as you know, usually yeah. gets my blood boiling in some way or other, I want to say that the, the real lesson of this virus is how inadequately prepared for crisis we are as a world, as a country that should be on top of most things, and even as a state and city. And this virus, which is why I mentioned this program that we're doing, but this virus is showing up every failure of infrastructure and every gross inequity and injustice that frankly, we all pay much too little attention to most of the time. It's a part of my professional work, but I still think I don't pay enough attention to it. And I know, I'm sorry to say, hundreds of people who pay no attention to it. So just one thing, and I'll get to your broader question in a minute, but one thing people could do right now is stop and think about all the people on whom we are currently dependent. None of whom, none of whom, with the possible exception of a pulmonologist at Mount Sinai, or I've just made that up, but none of whom makes the money that the rest of us make. You don't have to be wealthy 
if you're if you're on this call, if you're you might be you might be that somebody on this call who's part of Hazon who is a gig employee who's lost all of her jobs. I get that, but I'm saying in general, my life is now peculiarly dependent in a way that I have to pay attention to on everybody from farm workers to grocery store packers to food deliverers, all of whom basically get, excuse my language, shit wages. Um, and it's not like I haven't worked on these issues over my lifetime, I have, but I just think it, it just, it, it drives it home. The first person to die on Rikers Island was somebody who was in Rikers for a technical parole violation. We should never be jailing people who are in Rikers for technical parole violations. We should have had a system. I mean, that's just one of literally 40 examples. We should have had a system for those people not to end up on Rikers Island. To, to a different system doesn't mean they shouldn't be punished. It just means it shouldn't be the way it is. But it is the way it is. And so then the question becomes like, to get to your question, and I, I don't, I don't want to be a pessimist here, but I'm saying these are the issues to which we need to start turning our attention um, at every level. And well, pretty clearly, we don't have a national government that's prepared to do that now. And so it's going to fall to a lot of us both to try to change the national government as of November 2020. Um, it, I hope that that's more evident to more people now as to how critical that is. Um, but, but this goes on and on, and I don't wanna, I, I want you to interrupt with questions, but you know, my next big focus and concern, which I'm talking about already, will be the impact of this virus on the countries where American Jewish World Service works. Where- just, First of all, just before you go there, I just wanna say just on the very first thing that you said, um, that there was also an awful, awful thing that I read I think today or yesterday, about a bus driver in Detroit who had posted a short video online complaining about people sort of coughing aggressively or, or very right. close to him on the bus. And two weeks later, he was dead. And um, it's the same as, I mean, it's not the same, but it's parallel to that person in Rikers. And I, I, going back to the very first thing that you said, the interesting thing, like lots of things essentially are being revealed by what is happening right, exactly. right now. And one of the things that's being revealed is we're always dependent on all of those people, right? We, we, it's not like we're dependent on them during the virus. We're all dependent on them our entire lives. Exactly. As, soon as the velocity of certain sorts of things has slowed, it's become very strikingly uh, apparent. So I, I think that that's... Well, I mentioned it because it's a response to your question about what should we be doing? And I'm leaving aside for a minute who the we is. We need to be looking at these gross inequities, at the evident um, impact of racism in every one of these areas. Who gets, the, who gets the less well-paid service jobs? How do they get treated? How come the virus is having a much worse impact consistently in the communities of color? and poor communities, they're all, there's answers to all of these things, and there are solutions to all of these things, but the solutions in some cases are big, and who are going to be the thinkers who move us toward big solutions? You know, I can say things that people should be doing, so I will for a minute. If you have anybody listening to this, if you have anybody that provides you a weekly service, um, a house cleaner, a trainer, um, a food delivery person. I can't think of all the other examples. And that person 
for safety reasons or for legal reasons right now, um, can't come to see you or can't provide the service, you ought to ask yourself why you're not paying them anyway. Some people literally can't afford to, but most of us can. So I'm paying my trainer. I'm paying my house, my weekly house cleaner. Um, I went, because food delivery now, you can't, nobody can come to the door. So I live in an apartment building and food delivery goes through the building personnel. So I took a big tip down to my door people for the food deliverers. And my doorman told me that they almost burst into tears because everybody just stopped tipping them. That's yeah, I, 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 th this is very, very minor, but I, in general, really do try and give money to people who are in the streets. And I, it suddenly hit me this week that I'm, by definition, walking past a lot fewer people. And so I, I, even though I didn't really need it for anything, I put money sort of in my pocket as I've been going into the park. And the day before yesterday, I was in the park and kind of unusually, a woman came up to me like with a face mask on and started saying, you know, I have diabetes and I'm in need and stuff. And I, I mean, it's really not a big deal, but I gave this woman 20 bucks, which is, you know, more than I normally would in those circumstances. And I was like, I was really thinking about the fact that, it, that everything is, is unequal. But in a sense, that was more than I would normally give somebody, but I've been past fewer people in the street. I wanted right, to well, ask so just, to, just to go to the global issue for a minute. So yeah. these countries, are gonna be hit by the virus. And if, if they have any hope of coping with this kind of a pandemic, poor countries around the world, their hope would rest on the United States as a leader of um, Western support for humanitarian aid and on the World Health Organization. And in the last week, the United States has not only stopped humanitarian aid, but has withdrawn its funding from the World Health Organization for the the most petty explanation, which itself makes no sense, so it's not worth repeating. But it's, that's a disaster for us. You know, um, it will be the next disease after the coronavirus that will hit the world that the world will be less prepared for because the World Health Organization is being less well-funded. Yes, and, and I, I, so I also wanted to ask about this. It's not just things around the world, but I've been very struck by the fact that the federal government literally can print money. And so the process of doing a variety of bailouts, which I broadly support, um, happened quite quickly and is partly facilitated by the fact that the federal government's, that the, the overall budget is literally valuable. Now there are long-term choices and consequences and, and bills have to be paid and so on. But the fact that the federal government can print money is very significant and it makes it very different than a state government or a city government. And only in the last week, we've, we've learned that New York City may be facing a $10 billion deficit and that the mayor is potentially making $2 billion of cuts. And making cuts at a time like this almost invariably means effectively people losing their jobs. And my question is, A, is it not obvious that as well as bailing out small businesses and nonprofits the cruise industry and airlines and Boeing and so on and so forth, that the federal government ought to be, as it were, bailing out, providing additional funding to the cities and states. Of course they should. Um, I mean, of course they should. And, and, so what are, and is something now unusual? Well, um, I think it's unusual in its intensity. Um, 
you know, the federal, I mean, here's, I guess, my message for today, which is a good day to give this message because you can look out the window. I'm looking out, I'm happy to sound Central Park. It's gorgeous. Um, but my message is to everyone, it's a rainy day. By which I mean, many of us were raised in homes and in countries where the message was, oh, we're saving that for a rainy day. So folks, this is a rainy day. This is what, this is what that means. It means when like there's broad trouble, you have got to step in and use your resources. And we should be, deb and this will get us back to the Jewish community, I'm happy to say, but we, will be, we should be dipping into reserves, not in a crazy way, but in a really thoughtful way. We should be, we should be you know, spending our reserve. I, I just want to go to American Jewish World Service for a minute without getting into details. We had a plan, I mean, which we developed about eight years ago when we set up a really large reserve fund, which we needed, some of which was set up in my name, which was an honor to me. But we had a meeting beforehand and we set up the protocols. I don't even remember them, but it was like, okay, the CEO can dip into the reserve up to 10%. The board can dip, I'm making up the numbers, not exact, but the board can dip into the reserve up to 20%. If the reserve, if you decide you have to spend your reserve to 20%, then here's the ideal plan for rebuilding that reserve. That should be happening at every level of government. And it should be happening in large, not-for-profit universes. So my message to the Jewish community, indeed, is it's a rainy day. All of those endowments, all of which are necessary because they ensure our continuity and the continuity of our agencies, people should be meeting. Every CEO has authority over an endowment, should be meeting with you know, a wise bunch of people. There are a lot of sages around and saying like, okay, just what you asked me about 10 minutes ago, what's likely to happen? A lot of these smaller Jewish not-for-profits are likely to be in trouble. Some of them will be eligible for the federal CARES program, but I wanna say, Nigel, before you said helping not-for-profits, helping the airline industry, helping, 80% of that money is going to help large corporate interests. I'm not saying they don't need it. I don't wanna end up in a country without an airline industry, but I do want to end up in a country and a state and a city and a Jewish community that cares seriously about small not-for-profits and says, it's a rainy day. How do we get through the next three years? Which of our not-for-profits we, are we determined to save? Which of our not-for-profits can we find a way to help over this bump? Um, and what can we protect in the long haul? And you've heard me talk about this a lot, but I don't I think it's great, I will be positive. It's great that the Jewish community um, in New York has mobilized to expand some services to people in need in the Jewish community, food programs, um, food delivery programs, um, uh, uh, senior care, you know, paying attention to people who are isolated and alone, lots of good services, but that's not enough. We need, a, we need a question as to what does the Jewish community look like in 2020? What's going to look like in 2021? Not good. Where do we want it to be in pick a year, 2022, 2025? And what do we need to do now to use our reserves wisely during this rainy day time to build our infrastructure, to become more committed to equity, and to be in a better place in two or three years than we would be otherwise? I want to, I, I obviously not only agree, Ruth, but I, I want to add also very, very specifically, it's not just right, in my view, for organizations to be spending some of their reserves and for foundations 
uh, to be increasing their payout ratios. But I, I want to note, this applies to Chazon, but not only to Chazon, that, that some of the organizations that are most, most exposed are the ones that are young and growing and don't have reserves at all. Many of our older and legacy organizations essentially accrete reserves almost by accident over very, very long periods of time from bequests and all sorts yeah. of things. And um, it's some of the, the best of the younger organizations, truthfully, that are very exposed in this moment. And it's very, very tricky for us. Um, I also just want to say to, um, and there are a few people on the Zoom, but there are more on Facebook. In a minute, I'm going to take um, a couple of questions for people. And if you want to ask a question, if you're directly on Zoom, go ahead and just type it in the chat box. But if you're on Facebook, you can also type it on Facebook and Liana uh, will send it over to me. And I want to thank, by the way, Liana uh, uh, and Hannah who helped to organize this. Um, what is the, let's just play this out positively, Ruth. Like, okay. is there a scenario, does this, let's imagine, for example, that there is a new government elected that comes into place as of January of next year. How does what's happened, what does it look like to say, let's spend an extra 1% of GMP to build proper preventative health systems in the United States? So what does it mean for the United States to say, all of the world's central coordinating organizations, CDC in the United States, the World Health Organizations, like I think it's Bill Gates or other people who've made the point as awful as this is, we could face worse than this in the remainder of our lifetimes. We could face extreme climate events that literally we haven't seen before. What, is a, what are the, the, the ways to flesh out? How does this change public priorities in those ways? Well, um... Um, you're exactly right, and but let's let's pick up on that last point you made for a minute. I think it's very fair of the people who are most committed to working on sustainability, um, what Hazon does, talking about um, healthy and, and sustainable environments, um, to point out that the climate change crisis um, has a lot of parallels to the coronavirus crisis, except it's happening so slowly that people are, have much more leeway to ignore it because it doesn't, it's not gonna affect them. Um, so that's a point that we need to try to make and then maybe on Wednesday on Earth Day, we're gonna, 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we're gonna try to make that point. But what you said is exactly right. Everyone, let's say there's a new administration um, they're going to, I mean, you actually just laid it out in the, you know, one sentence, they're going to have to say, we need to set aside some piece of our current reserves or so, and some percentage of, of GNP going forward to plan differently for, and you can fill in the blank, the next large um, pandemic, you know, yet uh, one, um, a, um, a set of things triggered by climate change, certainly the area I work in most related to climate change is climate refugees around the world of whom they're a growing number. Um, to, we need to do something to strengthen the international bodies. All of that, when you ask, like, what does it take? I want to say that it not only takes new leadership, which we desperately need in this country, but um, it takes a particular kind of leader. And I'm not saying that I know who that is, but at every level of government or not-for-profit, because we're asking for a leader or leaders, plural, who can convince people to sacrifice now for the future. And that is a habit which was quite frankly 
much more common among individuals and heads of organizations and heads of state probably 50 or 100 years ago. And we've mostly lived for the last half century or maybe full century with like, if it's there, we can have it now. Why not? Yes, and I, I want to uh, I, I note that one of the incredible ironies of this is that the government interventions that have been made across the world and including in the United States, I'm totally, totally in favor of. They were absolutely necessary. And yet at one level, they represent the opposite of that. Rather than sacrificing now for the future, they actually at some level represent spending further monies, which are truly needed, where the bills are going to come due in the future. Um, I had one funny sideways thing on this, by the way, which Liz pointed out to me. Liz said that um, it was striking to her that the countries that had responded best to this had women leaders. And those oh, countries were Germany, New Zealand, Iceland, and Denmark. And I, I want to ask uh, if you think that that's the case. And if it is the case, why is that the case, Ruth? I think it's definitely the case. Um, and I think it has to do with differences between the genders that we don't often acknowledge, which has to do, I mean, I'm not going to get into a debate with you about any of this is nature or nurture, but I think, I think women and men, men generically speaking, general, are raised differently. And about women leaders, the ones you're talking about, first of all, Overall, I, I know that every one time I say this, people make me discuss Margaret Thatcher, but overall, they are people more committed to looking at the general welfare, more committed to an inclusive style of governing, and quite used to in their home lives, again, speaking generally, sort of working at three or four different levels at once. How do you prepare the next meal? How do you worry about the next three years of, I'll put it bluntly, your husband's parents, because a woman is more likely to be worried about her in-laws than her husband is to be worried about the same people. Um, and those people step into running a country. And, you know, we've seen this dramatically. The, you know, the, I think the issue that maybe stands out best in people's minds was this brand new prime minister of New Zealand who moved faster against um, a shooter, a terrible shooting, than any country and any state and any city, including all the best places in America where we were trying to respond to Columbine or Newtown or whatever. I mean, within literally one day, she was like, we are going to prosecute this person. We are never gonna mention his name on the air because that's part of what he's looking for. And we are gonna take long-term measures to see what we can do to be sure this doesn't happen again. And some of them may involve sacrificing some level of quote unquote personal freedom. Yes, and by the way, it's not it's not normally my role to defend Margaret Thatcher. Um, but but funnily enough, Margaret Thatcher was a scientist, she was a chemist. Um, and only relatively recently I came upon a huge speech that she did at the UN about climate change. And wow. she said, long before I had ever heard of it, this thing is happening, it's incredibly serious, the whole world needs to take pay attention to it and stuff. And so actually in that regard, at least I, I actually include her in the club of, of, of women leaders who were able to toggle different uh, time horizons. Okay, um, I'm going to go to questions from some other folk, but Bob Schloss, and I want to say hi and welcome Bob. Um, but Bob was saying, well, first of all, let me say, we're in Sfirat Omer right now. We're in the period of counting the Omer. It is this period from Pesach to Shavuot, and the night of Pesach is freedom from, in, in terms of a sort of Maslovian pyramid, it's the basic freedoms that we have to have to do anything else. Freedom from want, freedom from oppression, freedom from starvation, and at some level now, freedom from this uh, virus. But 
freedom from those things isn't the end of the story, it's the beginning of the story. Because when we have that, we then have 49 days from Pesach to Shavuot to think about freedom. What do we do with radical freedom, which isn't actually so good for us in certain respects? We're in the wilderness, the Torah's not yet been given, there are no rules. And we reflect on this, and then at the end of it, on the 50th day, we receive the Torah at Shavuot. And this is a more, more mature freedom. It's exactly what you were saying now about sacrificing for the future, right? It's the freedom to not spend money on things or to not do things or to not smoke cigarettes or to not do things that we could do, but they're not so good for us. Bob's question is, how should we be um, celebrating Shavuot this year? How should Shavuot be different? How should Lagba Omer be different? How should Tisha B'Av be different? Do you have any thought about, you, you know, your own Seder was different. And in fact, we might even end with your COVID Dayenu. But, but, but going forwards, how can or should the Jewish calendar reflect this? Um, I think, I mean, I, th I think you already did a piece of it. It's like, it's like Pesach is like freedom from, but it's also freedom to, um, you know, and the whole notion of Dayenu, which is sort of like always a puzzlement to me is like, you know, we say if this had just happened, it would have been enough, but we actually don't mean that. <laughs> we mean, it would have been great, but it would be even better if something else could happen next step. And so it's really a question of thinking about those next steps. And so you celebrate the giving of the Torah, but you say like, okay, what, what lessons does this unbelievable document have to teach us for this current time and for going forward and for um, listening to wise leaders? And, and you know, it, all the lessons are there and it's just a moment of reflection on how should we think about the holiday this particular year? You made the point, I guess, last week that Lagba Omer was also celebrating the end of a plague. You know, people have gone through plagues lots of times. And, um, you know, we all, those of us who have talked to Holocaust survivors and their children know that particular set of stories. None of us, I don't think, uh, likely to know anyone who lived through the 1918 plague. But my, one of my clever grandchildren researching on the web sent me this great ad from the newspaper in 1918 telling everyone to wear a mask. And it was like, oh my God, <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Um, we're gonna start to come into land in a minute. I, I, I can't do this on Facebook, but I think for the small number of people here who are on Zoom, I'm actually gonna um, uh, either demute you or if you want, just put up your hands. But, but um, uh, uh, Isaiah, Liana, Valerie, Amanda, Bob, Richard, if any of you wants to ask Ruth a question, this is, this is, this is your moment and I'll, I'll unmute you. I think I've got Valerie. Okay, Valerie, you're up. Hello. Hi. I started touching upon some of the places in the world where AJWS does work. I know our family's connected with an organization that helps people in the slums and rural villages in India. And we've seen videos and reports about Africa. And could you just talk a little bit more about how they get through this and what is our privileged position um, where we are, you know, the hardest thing we have to do in many cases is to just stay home. Can you broaden the global view on this pandemic and tell us how we can be helping and what their situation is? 
Absolutely. I would just say, um, to pick up sort of where you ended, the last page of my Haggadah, not the part I'm going to read later, but the last page of my Haggadah was a sign that someone posted. I have no idea who did it. I think people who find these things are geniuses. But it says, our grandparents were asked to go to war. We're being asked to sit on the couch. How hard is that? Um, you know, which is, which is a piece of what this story is. So, but in the, in the countries around the world, um, Valerie, this is like a really long story. Um, first of all, there's no health infrastructure whatsoever. I spoke to a former colleague of mine in Peru. Now, please do not quote this because she's not a health expert, but she does amazing work in Peru in the not-for-profit sector. She believes that the country of Peru has four ventilators. But lots of places that we work, and India, which you talked about, there's no health infrastructure. There are many places where quite literally there is no soap and water. So you could do, we did a fantastic job, AJWS, my favorite grant in the 18 years I ran AJWS, definitely my favorite grant, was a grant from the American Jewish World Service to the National Imam Council of Liberia, because we figured out that Imams were the only people that Liberians would listen to, to be told to change their funeral practices because their existing funeral practices, which were as sacred to them as ours are to us, were directly contributing to the spread of Ebola. And so we funded Imams to give the public health message. That's the kind of thing, if you go on the Agent of website now, you'll see we have a special fund for COVID-19 19 and we're doing work in every country on various things. But I want to go, you mentioned India, and so that, that leads to raising a new issue. So in addition to no soap and water, no health infrastructure, the vast number of people in many of these countries make their living basically with a combination of sales of like little, uh, little food that they grow or chashkis that they make or by barter. They have to go to market to do it. Marketplaces are by definition based on social congregation. So we have some countries and India probably one of them. And now this is very hard to say. So please realize that I, I know I'm talking about complexity, but where the countries have announced really serious public quote unquote public health measures that take traffic off the roads, that stop public transit, that limit congregating at market, but where the leaders of some of these countries know that the implications of these draconian measures will actually specifically hurt populations that they want to hurt. So in India, the question is, Modi acted very fast with all kinds of, I'm gonna use this thing, Western-looking crackdowns. I'm not saying that they don't need to exist in the rest of the world, but there is strong feeling on the part of the Muslim population in India that this is an opportunity, basically, to decrease the Muslim population in a variety of ways. Now, I can't swear to that. I can tell you it's really complicated, um, but but it's happening all over. Look, the United States, lest we think that in a, in a wise move, not, not that any of us think it's wise, but you know the United States has been involved in deporting people who aren't here legally. The United States put people on a plane back to Guatemala, and when they got off the plane and Guatemala tested them, 60% of them were positive for the virus. That's an act of murder on the part of my government, as far as I'm concerned. We had the resources to test them. We didn't test them. We, quote, sent them home because they don't belong here. And um, they're now spreading uh, the coronavirus in Guatemala. So 
this gets more and more complicated when you get to the rest of the world because I have a student, um, one of my students at Hunter, and again, this is apocryphal, folks, but, but he's Nicaraguan. His cousin is a nurse in Nicaragua. She told him that in her hospital, they were told, we will announce one new case a day. So who knows? I mean, who knows yeah. if the announcements are real? If we know that the situations are so dire that help like you're providing to a small NGO is useful, that what AGJWS is doing. I think, and Nigel, I'm gonna make a point back to the Jewish community now. If you look at the AJWS guidelines for responding to the virus, we're letting many more of our grantees, we're keeping their grants going. We're letting them use their grants for not necessarily the program they were originally funded for, but for general operating support. My perception, Nigel, in the Jewish community is that there are some extraordinary um, foundations, both secular and Jewish, that have stepped up to the plate in this way. Um, yeah. I think particularly of the Weinberg Foundation, where like four weeks ago, before people were even thinking about this, Rachel Monroe announced a series of grants every place they worked that were responsive to the virus, you know, colloquial um, to her. But meanwhile, I know of, grant, of foundations in the Jewish and the secular community that are calling small not-for-profits and saying, um, we're thinking of changing our priorities, so we won't be able to fund you next year. Good luck. I mean, well, well, that's... So, and this yeah. comes back to the Jewish community is where is the oversight, yeah. um, Nigel, of, yeah. as you said, as you said from this perspective that we're talking about Hazon is a big organization. It's not a big organization, but, but where is Hazon's yeah. plan for the next two years? And where is, um, I'm just picking it out at random, the Jewish, Jewish community yes. action in the Twin Cities? And where yes. is, you know, so how do we look at these? Which ones can we... Um, let's put it affirmatively, which ones that would, should the Jewish community be thinking, these are organizations we must save. Um, Nigel knows that I think this about Isabella Friedman, okay? I don't know what Hazelman is gonna do about Isabella Friedman. The notion that the Jewish community in New York, and by the way, Nigel, I have a thought, um, that the Jewish community in the Northeast, I'm gonna say it that way, yes. would allow this unbelievable resource to be sold outside of the community is to me beyond belief. And that doesn't, Hazon can't do that on its own. We have to be talking, and Nigel, the thought, which came to me from um, our colleague, Nancy, is for you to talk to Federation in Boston. Longer distance, but maybe they are, um, excuse my language, yes. smart enough and forward-looking enough to say they'd like to, they'd like to help us keep this yes. in the Jewish community. Yes. Well, let me say, let me in fact say a couple of things then on my side to uh, start to wrap this up. And then Ruth, maybe we'll, we'll end with your COVID uh, Dianu. But um, yes, firstly, on the one hand, it seems absolutely clear that on the other side of this, the two central things, as it were, that Hazan has been involved in, one has been just raising the conversation in the Jewish community about environmental sustainability and the need for it to be central to Jewish life that that becomes only more and not less necessary on the other side of all of this. It's been foregrounded in a sense. And yes, it's true that, that at Friedman, and truthfully, originally through our rights, we were always about bringing people together. And although we can do things on Zoom and other things will happen by Zoom, there is, a, there is gonna be a deep human need, right, on the other side of this, to gather together, to learn, to celebrate. And yes, it's very striking. I'm thrilled 
that the Jewish community has created pots of money specifically to support JCCs, thrilled that the community has created pots of money specifically to support Jewish camps. But it is very striking that something like the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center, which fulfills many of those roles, nevertheless falls outside of those two pots. Um, I wanna say that this uh, Wednesday is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And at noon that day, we're inviting people all over the world to blow their shofar to sound the call. It's literally gonna be 9 a.m. on the West Coast. It's gonna be five o'clock in London and seven o'clock in Israel. Um, and originally we were gonna do it in Times Square with 50 rabbis and environmental leaders. So now we're gonna do it virtually. And so the lines, the Zoom line is gonna open at 11 a.m. EST on Wednesday. Um, Ruth is gonna be part of it. Uh, Bill McKibben is gonna be joining us. Um, we have people in different locations. Uh, privately, we're hoping that we're gonna get Mattis Yahoo to sing one day as part of that. But definitely put in your calendar um, 11 a.m. to noon uh, this Wednesday uh, to mark Earth Day. Um, Ruth, to you, I wanna, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for looking after uh, your great-grandson so well and uh, for cooking and just being like a familial role model at all of those levels, but also for being an incredible teacher, educator, advocate, and people who sort of like rattles the cage. And I, I think I just wanted to end and ask you to share with us your, your, your COVID day, Anu, and any last thought that you may have. And I wanna thank everybody for joining us. I'm, I'm happy to do this and I'll, I'll just share, I'll just say for about 30 years, I've written uh, Haggadah for the second night of Pesach with family, but with lots of friends, always about social justice. Every year I go into it and look for how to update it because I think it's supposed to be not just contemporary, but timely to the moment. Well, this year I did a, a broader rewriting of the Dayenu prayer. First, I was making the point that I made before, which is like exactly what do we mean by um, it would have been enough and sort of that we should think about that about uh, as meaning like we would be grateful, but it actually wouldn't be enough. And then after I rewrote uh, the sort of standard Dayenu about, you know, fighting racism and homophobia and healing the world, I added the following and I, I'll end with that as four for Dianos, I guess. If we are sheltered in place, but so many others have no place that provides shelter, and so are triply at risk, it should not be enough. If we are fortunate enough to retain our health or have the best medical care, but others are toiling on the front lines without adequate protective equipment, it should not be enough. If we are able to identify those leaders who are giving us grim but accurate scientific information, but too many others are being fed poppycock by dangerously manipulative people in positions of power, it should not be enough. And finally, if we emerge from what may be months of quarantine and homeschooling and Zoom, but fail to change our leaders, expand health coverage, care for those who are still in danger around the globe, and plan better for future disasters, it will not be enough. Ruth, thank you so very much indeed. Um, to everybody who has joined us, thank you. Stay healthy. Tune in the same time next week. It's going to be Dr. Alon Tal, who is the founder of the Israel Union for Environmental Defense and the head of the Green Party uh, in Israel. Um, 
to everybody, thank you to Liana and Hannah and all of Hazan staff. Thank you so very much. And we will hope to see you for Earth Day this coming Wednesday, April 22nd. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.